just before this key verse. Today we will have we will hear the core command of our rhetorical questions that begin our reading at verse six of chapter eight of chapter six excuse me those who wish to follow in the new pew bible will want to please turn to page 1060 in the old testament let us listen for what the spirit is saying to us today with what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you, and to bid to do justice, and to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your Lord. May God guide us as we work to obey. Because I was facing this direction, I neglected to mention, you see this beautiful new banner up here that Karen Cornwell put together. So uh, if you like it, uh, uh, let her know. Uh, and I think you probably like it, right? So uh, let her know about that. Let her know about that lovely um, evocation of what we're looking at here as we think about these words from Micah. I want to do a little word association with you, though. Uh, uh, what you think of, what you picture, what comes to mind when I say the word justice. What does that suggest? What does that, what, what picture rises up? Some of you probably think about the administration of justice, uh, uh, the ways in which it is um, uh, a place for legal decisions and how they are made. Study was done some years ago uh, about rooms like this in churches like ours, traditional sanctuaries. Uh, people who had not really been in a space like this very much were asked what they thought it looked like. Guess what they thought it looked like? Courtroom. Can't imagine why, huh? Yeah, yeah. It's even better when I wear a black robe, don't you think? Yeah. There's that. So, so for a lot of people, justice is about what gets administered in the name of justice. For some people, we think of punishment or we think of consequences for uh, doing something that is against the order, for violating, for wrongdoing. Others of us might think of fairness in our society and advocacy that that is what justice means. You might have some other definitions, but those are at least our three common ones. What I'd like to do this morning is have us think a little bit about justice. I'd like to have us look at four widely recognized categories 
of justice, the things that are procedural, the things that we might call distributive, uh, what we might call retributive, what we might call restorative. Big words, big words. We'll try to make sense of them and what they mean. I hope they'll be helpful. And then the real question I want to ask is, when Micah says justice, what does Micah mean by justice and what might that mean for us, right? I think it's helpful not just to think about what we mean by justice, but if we're looking biblically, what does the Bible mean? What does Micah mean? How does he understand God's justice, right? So procedural, those of you who said, who thought of a courtroom, that is procedural justice. And all these different versions of justice are in the Bible. So there's a lot of verses like Deuteronomy 16 that says you must not distort justice. You must, show, uh, must not show partiality and you must not accept bribes, right? It's a matter of administering the legal system in a way that is fair, that is not biased. There's another verse in Exodus that says, don't show favoritism for the rich, don't show favoritism for the poor, but be fair in the administration of justice. We understand that. We want fair procedures in our life. It's what we expect if we enter into the justice system as anything other than a person who tries to avoid jury duty, right? We want to have it be fair. We want to have it be uh, uh, the kind of thing where uh, it's right, it's proper, it's balanced. We have to acknowledge uh, when we talk about that, that because different people have different experiences of the justice system, sometimes we have different expectations of it and it can be a worthy thing to talk about. So distributive justice is also mentioned in the Bible. Two places in Acts, for example, talk about how that early Christian community lived after the Holy Spirit came upon them. Uh, we can read they would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. Right? It is a way of also establishing fairness, of recognizing that some people have more and some people have less, and what is our obligation around fairness when that happens. It's the same kind of thought when we hear Paul in 2 Corinthians, we looked at this a couple months ago, where he quotes from Exodus and says uh, uh, of the story in Exodus, the people who had a lot didn't have too much, people who had a little did not have too little. Right? It's not making everybody equal, but it's striving to have some sense of equity. The idea that certainly no one should fall below a certain level, and sometimes that means that there are those who have risen above a certain level that we would call too much, and somehow there needs to be a way of establishing balance. Distributive justice is in those passages about gleaning, where people who own fields when they harvest are required to leave a little space around the edge of the field so that the poor can come and harvest that. They do not own that. They have a responsibility to those who do not have as much. There are dozens of commands in Scripture, literally dozens, that society needs to provide for the weak, characterized as the widow, the orphan, the alien. Right? Visually, it means that in this picture, we take the box from the kid who doesn't need it, and we give that box to the kid who does. See? Uh, there are also those who ask, well, yeah, but why are all those kids outside? <laughs> 
Why can't they be inside? Um, but that's distributive justice, well recognized in the Bible. Probably the best known uh, uh, biblical verses, though, about justice are retributive. Right? So there are three different versions of this, but you will recognize part of it. Anyone who maims another shall suffer the same injury in return. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. The injury inflicted is the injury to be suffered. Right? Uh, if anybody knows anything about justice in the Bible, probably they will quote to you, eye for an eye and a truth for tooth. Uh, in Exodus, a different version of this says life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. What you give is what you get. It shall be done unto you as you have done unto someone else. The idea is that a violation of the order sets things out of balance, and then there is a price that needs to be paid to put things back in balance. There needs to be some sense of consequence when someone violates the order of things. And there is a certain logic to this. You do that, that gets done to you, right? And when we show statues of Lady Justice, we frequently have those balances, those scales in one hand, because we want things to be fair and, and we want things to be even, balanced out. Uh, but there's also frequently a sword in the other hand because uh, sometimes that kind of justice needs to be enforced. And the sword is part of that. Paul makes reference to the sword when he writes to Romans. Um, problem with retributive justice is that it can very easily degenerate into vengeance, uh, into I'm going to set things right by my standard. And God says, no, 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 I'm the one who sets the standards. I'm the one who sets things right. Vengeance belongs to me, says God. Because retributive justice can degenerate into vengeance, we also talk about restorative justice that takes everyone into account, the victim of wrongdoing, but also the one who does wrong and what the community responsibility is around that. So, the parable of what we call the prodigal son is a story about restorative justice, right? This son goes out and violates all the norms and comes back expecting just to be a slave and is instead readmitted into the family. Comes back and is restored to his position as a son. The church is commanded to be a restorative community. So Galatians, for instance, Paul will tell them, if anyone is detected in a transgression, you should restore them in a spirit of gentleness. Any particular consequence that the church has authority to impose upon someone is done with the idea that that person will be restored to the community and that the community has a responsibility to make sure that that is the case. Restoration almost inevitably involves repentance. Um, it can also uh, involve restitution, somehow doing something on behalf of the one that you have wounded, 
beyond an apology, beyond sorrow. And that that becomes the path to restoration. It's partly why we call our institutions, well, we call them correctional. The idea that they are supposed to take bad behavior and correct the person so that they are capable of good behavior. We, or we call them penitentiaries. The Quakers invented penitentiaries with the idea that somebody who had done wrong would go sit for a little while uh, by themselves and become penitent, right? Become uh, sorry for what they had done and then be readmitted back in. Part of the problem is that we have trouble sorting out restorative justice and retributive justice. So our institutions sometimes strive to be correctional and sometimes are still striving to do retribution, right? To do punishment. And part of the problem is we have trouble sorting out punishment from uh, restoring people. Uh, and there's lots more that lots of people could say about that. What I commend to you, and uh, you can see it's a very complicated Venn diagram, but there are programs afoot in our society that very specifically seek to accomplish victim reparation, something given back to the victim, uh, a sense of well-being or maybe a monetary reparation, but also seek to uh, uh, offender responsibilities down there be interestingly, behind the cross, and uh, the community has responsibility for making that happen. And there are all kinds of programs that are, uh, you can find in some jurisdictions that really seek to take responsibility, not just to punish wrongdoers, and not just to set aside victims, but sometimes to bring them together face-to-face, -to -face, victims willing to accomplish something more that helps a victim truly feel healed in whatever they have suffered, but also helps an offender move towards being restored to the community. Restorative justice. So, okay, that's my little sociology lecture, but what does Micah have to say about this, right? One of the things that happens when we look at the prophets, we are mindful that they make judgments, right? Well, justice and judgment both come from the same root. Uh, so we shouldn't be surprised that somebody who's interested in justice makes a judgment, right? There are decisions that need to be made, and they are decisions about right and wrong, some of the most basic things that we can put together. So Micah elsewhere, not just chapter 6, but elsewhere, speaks to specific issues that I think will help us think about how he views justice. And I hope, maybe, think about how we might view justice, either already do or maybe we shift a little bit. So Micah is very concerned about idolatry, and so there are condemnations early in the book of Micah about idolatry. Um, all your images, all her images, referring to the city of Samaria, shall be beaten to pieces, and all her idols will, I will lay to waste, God says through Micah. Uh, this kind of language in the prophets is pretty darn retributive. Right? These are consequences for what you have done wrong. Idolatry is an interesting thing to talk about because it's one of those things that modern people think we don't do. We think we don't place godly value on objects, on things. 
We think we don't. But idolatry is at least in part investing godly perspective, divine spiritual perspective, into objects in a way that causes them to displace God in our lives. It is a situation where we value objects, not just above God, but above people. So it shouldn't surprise us that Micah is also concerned about corruption, because when we begin to value material things over humanity, over godly things, it's not surprising that our relationships, those who seek to lead us, those who hold power, will also be found to be corrupt. So Micah attacks the various forms of leadership, of power in his society. Rulers give judgments for a bribe. Priests teach for a price. Prophets give oracles uh, for money. With the prophets, it almost inevitably meant that they told people what they wanted to hear, not what they needed to hear. When those in power uh, use their power, in a way that throws things off, then the thing that is put out of balance are the, uh, oops, one more here, right? Can I tolerate wicked scales? The scales of justice, the scales of commerce are literally put out of balance. Your wealthy are full of violence and lies, Micah says just after chapter six, verse eight, right? People begin to value what they have and the power it gives them over the well-being of the community. And that throws the procedures of justice out of balance. The ways in which things should be administered on behalf of all are instead administered on behalf of those who hold power. It is corruption of the procedures, of the fairness that we would want to expect from our community, from its systems. Micah's most specific, right, these are broad, right? Idolatry is a relatively broad category, investing godly value in material things. We don't do that anymore, but, but that's what idolatry is, right? Um, and corruption is a broad value. When Leadership, when people in power uh, begin to uh, administer a corrupt system or corrupt the administrative system. But, but Micah gets most specific around issues of land. Those with power covet fields and seize them, houses, and take them away. The women of my people you drive out from their houses, uh, from their infants you take away my glory forever. Right? Micah is concerned about those who have less power, having even less power than that because their property, their basic uh, 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 possession, their land, the place where they stand and sit and live, is being taken from them, or they are being taken from it. It is a granular kind of thing. It's a very specific kind of thing. It is a policy issue. 
How do we deal with land? What does it mean for us to think about who has what in terms of uh, land and what we can draw from land? That is a distributive issue, right? Who has how much land? Who doesn't have any land? How do we sort that out? What does it mean for those who are powerful to take away the very land of those who do not have power? Now, Micah is not all judgment. The prophets are not all about condemnation. It's not all negative. Micah verbatim uses words that we are used to hearing from Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 2 has exactly these same words. God shall judge between many peoples and shall arbitrate between strong nations far away. They shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks, you know how this goes, right? Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, nor shall they learn war anymore. The tools of, uh, that are weapons are to be transformed into tools for working the land. Tools of attack or defense are transformed into tools of production and nourishment in the ideal age that Micah and Isaiah describe. It is a reorientation of purpose. Okay, then what? Everybody just sits around and sings Kumbaya? By the way, I like kumbaya. I don't have a problem with kumbaya. Why does kumbaya get made fun of so much? But is that what comes next? There's been this transformation. Uh, there's been this reorientation of purpose. We're no longer about defending or attacking. We're about growing and nourishing. We have taken the tools of war and made them into the tools of growth, of agriculture, of working the land. Then what? What is part of this ideal vision of the future that Micah and Isaiah offer? Well, Micah adds on to this vision, or we might say he had the original version and Isaiah takes this away, I don't know, but Micah adds on a word about the land. But they shall all sit under their own vines and their own fig trees and no one shall make them afraid. The ideal picture of a world that is fully at peace involves a transformation of how we do what we do and the tools we use, a reorientation of our purpose together, one that comes from God, but ultimately it also means that everybody has their own land, their own means of producing what they need, their own empowerment. For Micah, this is key 
to the ideal that God wants for us, the picture of how we might live in a fully godly world. That has profound implications for who we are and how we are together. There has not been a period in human history that I am mindful of where the issue of land distribution, land justice, land production has not been a very basic issue. It has implications for how we think about indigenous people all over the world. Hmm? And by the way, just because the news isn't covering anymore doesn't mean the Amazon isn't still burning. Can I just say that? Or when we look at our own history, what if, what if 150 some years ago, we had followed through on the promise to freed slaves that they would have 40 acres, in some versions, 40 acres and a mule, instead of paying reparations to the people who had enslaved them? What if, what if we'd done that? things be different. What we do about that now is much more complicated because we didn't do it then. Land, earth, soil is for Micah, but I think potentially for us, central to how we might understand justice and how God wants us to live procedurally distributively, justly. Well, there are other examples I won't belabor it. Um, except to say this. I think Micah's answer, do justice, begs Micah's question. With what shall I come? I think he understands that with what shall I come is a profoundly limited question. Because it's not about me. It's not about you individually. It's not about any particular individual. This is one of my whiny little things, but it always strikes me interesting that we come together, we gather together, and then we sing a bunch of songs whether contemporary or the uh, traditional hymns, that are all about me and God, right? I, I'm sorry that we're not singing about you and God. They're just singing about, it's all about, right? Um, when we do well to sing about our relationship, hmm? who we are together. The, 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 the relationship that an individual has to God is profoundly important and profoundly scriptural, but to only stay there is so limited. To only ask, with what shall I come, what do I have to do to get what I need from God is a profoundly limited question. And if we stay with that question only, our biblical question becomes, I think, profoundly unbiblical. The invitation to justice is to think not just with what shall I come, what will I do, should I stop using straws, or what, right? It is about what should we do, what would we bring, not 
with what shall I come, but can we find a place where we begin to work together to make an offering to God and to one another that is truly about justice. What would those figs look like? That, I think, is the question.